Hey there, welcome back to the Will and Rob show. It's great to be with you on this September afternoon. This is Labor Day week. Uh, I am here with my good friend, Robert Hassler. Uh, We've gone through his titles and the hats that he wears. And you know what, just to avoid potential inflation of the ego, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to skip right on in. Looking out for me. Oh, anytime, anytime. This is a whole, this is a real plank and spec moment for you uh, here we're working on. And so little, little, little biblical joking there, but um, yeah, it is. It's good to be back. Good to, uh, good to be talking with you guys. Um, and, but Robert, first of all, uh, what's going on with you? Yeah, man, it's, uh, it has just been awesome enjoying this beautiful weather that we've had. Uh, I mean, I've been spending a lot of my time outside, just like walking around because it's not like crazy humid hot. Uh, but it does like you, like you were saying, it's kind of got that, that change of season, uh, in the air. And for some reason, this kind of weather always sort of like brings me back to like sort of like those first couple weeks of school football, you know, it's just that wonderful time. It's a, it's a fun, fun time of transitions and new beginnings and of some, of uh, at least in some kind. One of the greatest rom-com lines of all time is from Tom Hanks in You've Got Mail. And he says, don't you just love New York in the fall? It makes you want to buy school supplies. I would send you a bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils if I knew your name and address. Every fall, that line comes comes back to my head. But, uh, you know, I was back visiting my parents at their home in Alito, Texas, and I was outside and my parents were like, you know, it's not, it's not really the heat that's so bad right now. It's the humidity. And I thought to myself, oh, dear goodness, you guys have no idea what humidity is, do you? Because it felt well, like it was I was officially in a, a swamp creature. It, it, I, it felt like I was in a desert landscape compared to the humidity of D.C. But to your point, the positive point, uh, it actually doesn't feel that humid right now. It's nice. It's, it's beautiful weather. Uh, beautiful skies. And so really grateful for that, but we're not here just to talk about the weather. We're not meteorologists. We're not weathermen. Uh, and as we said before, we don't mind talking beyond the scope of our expertise, but we want to get a little closer. Um, but we want to go back to kind of a memory. So we're, we'll release this episode on Thursday, September 9th, uh, just two days before the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And I think we would be remiss to not at least um, reflect a little on that uh, for so many reasons. Um, millions and millions of Americans, um, the, the majority of their lives have been defined, uh, at least in a foreign uh, policy sense, and um, America on the global stage by what happened on September 11th. Uh, it was a huge change in our understanding of a post-Cold War world, of America's place in the world. Um, addition to that, the, the power of belief as well. I don't mean that necessarily positively, but um, the the potency of religion that was probably underestimated by um, by global thought leaders a lot was, was really underestimated. Um, and just even places like Afghanistan, where they were on the map, um, the di- I mean, I think for a lot of Americans, and you know, I was really young, so it's hard to say what I thought, but at that age, like what's the difference between a Muslim and a Hindu and a Buddhist? I mean, there was hardly any familiarity of any of those religions uh, for the average American. And all of these distinctions started coming and rushing to the fore and having to parse them out. And um, 
learn about it. And, and I think the recurring question of why do they hate us is one um, that a lot of people were asking. I mean, there's so many things that we could we could talk about, but it, it really has changed the way America understands herself and the world. And um, as I think understanding for uh, a church in terms of mission and then church in terms of its mission here within its American churches within America. But Robert, um, I mean, I vividly remember where I was on 9-11 and how I was told about it. Where were you and who told you that uh, the Twin Towers had been struck? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I I too remember a lot of details about that day, uh, which is strange because that day I was in, I think I was in third grade and I don't remember anything else from really second through fourth grade um, in terms of that specific of a memory. Um, 9-11 stands out. Um, I remember just sort of all of the little things that happened throughout that day. And, and uh, obviously when, when the towers were hit, I was already at school. Um, I had already been on the bus and, and was at school. And so uh, obviously it was early in the day, uh, probably right at the beginning. I probably rode, rode the bus that day, got to school, um, and had probably been ushered into my classroom when very early, I remember um, my classmates just being pulled out of school really quickly. Like, you know, every once in a while, right, one kid gets to leave school early because they've got a doctor's appointment or, you know, some other what we would all call lucky things happened to them. Um, but it was one of those days where I just remember it was weird because so many kids were getting pulled out of school as the as the day went on. And I remember by lunchtime, our elementary school didn't actually have enough like students in each classroom to like really have class. And so effectively what was happening was they gathered all of the second through fourth, fifth graders into one classroom. We kind of had a free day of reading or sort of playing random stuff. And what I do remember, what what I thought was strange about it was that um, we would have a teacher come in and watch us for about an hour. And then about an hour later, a teacher would come and relieve that teacher and that teacher would go. And they were all, what they were doing is they were all sitting in the teacher's lounge watching the television. Um, And I don't, I don't remember our teachers being distraught and they definitely didn't tell us anything about what was going on. Um, But I just sort of remember that element of school. And I do remember coming home on the bus and the bus was basically empty. Um, and I got home and the thing that I knew something was when I knew something was definitely off, something was very weird was that my dad was home in the middle of the day. Uh, my dad worked in downtown Dallas. Uh, he actually worked at the time in the tallest skyscraper in Dallas. Um, and so when they heard the news about what had happened in New York, there was a lot of panic about what other targets there could be. So basically a lot of major cities evacuated, um, at least their, their big skyscrapers. Um, and so my dad's building was evacuated. And so he came home um, and he was upstairs in our uh, uh, living room. It was a, like a playroom essentially for me and my sister, but we had a, a TV in there and, uh, and also like a desk thing. So my dad had kind of his paper and he was working, uh, but he had the news on and was watching uh, the news come, come through. Um, uh, I remember I walked through the door and my mom was washing dishes and she was very distraught and upset. Um, I knew something had happened and I asked her what happened. And she said to go upstairs and talk to your dad. Um, and so that's when I went up and saw the first v- images on the television of the smoking. Um, obviously, well, I guess at that time, the towers were, they were 
they were destroyed. So it was just the smoldering heap um, and asking my dad what had happened. Um, and yeah, uh, he, I don't know how you really explain something like that to a third grader. Um, he just told, I just remember being told that um, some very bad people had done a very bad thing um, and that a lot of people had died in New York City. Um, that was that was basically the extent of what I was told. And I remember a lot of stuff afterwards. And that, that's another thing we can get into, which I think would be interesting, is I remember almost the sort of national discourse that was happening in the news and amongst like sort of friend, like family friends and stuff as much as I remember the actual events. All right, we got to pause. I got to go. Get it's perfect. Uh, but Will, I want to know what was what was that day like for you? Well, yeah. B- before I forget, as we move on, you mentioned you were thinking, how could your dad explain this to third grade Robert? And he said some very bad men, and um, it was called a terrorist attack throughout the day, of course. But prior to that, I mean, it really changed an understanding of what terrorism was because, I mean, I, I knew about Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing and. I mean, candidly, I think the the concepts of terrorists or like radical white militants was was generally the understanding, or at least as as a middle schooler, kind of the image I had in my head of what a terrorist was. And there wasn't really a concept of like an international model of terrorism coming to America. It was mostly um, uh, uh, stateside. Well, we've talked about this, and I think that's that's definitely true across the country, but it's. Ex- People who maybe aren't from the Dallas-Fort Worth area know that that's particularly what we were. I, I definitely remember that because Oklahoma City bombing was so close to us. Waco, things like that. I mean, that, yeah, which wasn't that terrorism, a but it was a very big thing for DFW people. Yeah, it was a subculture. It was an it was an anti-government movement along with places like Ruby Ridge as well. But yeah, I mean, so so that is something that jumps out at me. And yeah, I was uh, so I was homeschooled at that time. I was homeschooled through the eighth grade. Uh, proud of that fact. But I, I got a phone call from Casey Vermillion, who's a friend I played baseball with. And he said, uh, the, the, the Twin Towers in New York have been, have been attacked. And I, I had no idea what that was. I mean, I really had no idea what, what they were. I was completely ignorant to that. And I remember that the day before we were hanging out at a park in Benbrook and we were wondering what would it be like if we had a world war three, which is like a conversation probably most little boys have, you know, of like, what would it be like if someone comes, how do you defend your family? You know, how do you defend your classroom? Or so that kind of, so I, it was a fairly typical, but it was just kind of seared in my memory. Cause uh, that was, that was, I think we we're both kind of like, whoa, did we predict something um, that was going to happen? Uh, thank God. No, we didn't of course. And, uh, but, uh, and, um, and, so I remember watching the news and then we didn't have cable at the time. We just had regular news. And so we got uh, in the car and drove to my grandparents' house in Fort Worth. And so it was uh, my mom, um, my siblings and me, and then my dad met us there. And then we came back that night back to Alito. But I remember watching the news, trying to figure out, just curious how many people were, how many people were affected by it in New York. And then of course there was the attack on the Pentagon, which whenever you and I drive 395 uh, up here, always see the monument that is, that is there and around right outside the Pentagon. Um, 
and then flight 93 of course uh but it was a shocking um they i mean it, it was just um yeah it was one of those things that i remember specific things about that day that i don't remember about other parts of my childhood. I remember at night, my dad sitting outside on the uh, walkway steps, just looking at the stars, just kind of wondering, trying to piece it all together of what it all meant. But yeah. Um, and of course, then we have the attack on Afghanistan and the war, war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq that of course followed. And then um, was such a, again, defining feature of American political life from that point on. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of why I brought up, you know, the the lasting dialogue that happened post 9-11, because I remember all of that almost as much as I remember the actual events of 9-11. And, and what I mean by that is I remember the sort of like uh, the, the, the like sort of sort of serious parts of it. And then also the some of the like the not so serious sort of just like cultural stuff. So like I remember, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, everyone listens to the country music station. Like you could just tell like the sort of the patriotism that uh, people felt post 9-11 was seeping into a lot of sort of just cultural stuff, uh, particularly like music and that sort of wave of, you know, like the, the Toby Keith sort of like American anthem coming blaring at you through the radio. And What's funny is like, I remember also like that moment through, you know, the sort of the scandal that was, and I, this sounds trivial, but I, I love music. So I, I think about a lot of these things through this, this fear of what's going on in music. But like, I remember sort of like the scandal of that Green Day album that was very critical of the American policy in the Middle East and the reactions that people had, you know, against uh, people who were skeptical or, um, asked questions about what was America doing in some of these uh, things overseas. And um, so like, I remember all of that. I, I don't know if you remember, I, I recently actually just watched a, a little Netflix miniseries about 9-11 and really sort of the post 9-11 uh, 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 conflicts uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq. I, uh, a dialogue that I could come totally came back to me watching that was, do you remember uh, the, the mosque that they wanted to build on ground zero. And just, I remember that discussion being talked about at our kitchen table. And I remember things like that too, that are just sort of, they're connected to 9-11, but they're, they're so they're tangential in, in important ways, but, but really connected to all that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I, I, yeah, I remember all the conversation and the, the anger, frustration, defensiveness of that decision uh, when they were considering the building the mosque there near ground zero. And, uh, you know, in, in line with this, and like you mentioned, there's the Netflix series, there's an Apple series that's out there. There's so many books that have been written about nine 11 and, um, yeah, I mean, flight changed forever, of course, uh, what it means to go through security and you can't see family off at, at, um, uh, at the gate, but it, you know, anyways, and, and I think, Part of the reason is, look, we've been talking about Afghanistan the last few weeks, and we don't want to talk about that too much right now. But on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we look back on the war in Afghanistan that was started waging 20 years ago and has now ended. It has it has ended. 
we have left Afghanistan. There's still around 100 Americans there. Um, and 9-11, what is its meaning? Um, how do we consider it and remember it at this point? Um, so much of like what you mentioned with the Toby Keith music, like, hey, we're going to get the bad guys that did this to us. And that was certainly the sentiment that was expressed by President Bush at the time. Um, that was by by Congress as a whole. That wasn't just President Bush. That was that was a sentiment. Now we look and um, the Taliban is back in power. They have just installed. Uh, I think their minister of security is uh, a recognized national on the terrorist list. Um they, they are not allowing for flights to leave that have nationals other than Americans on them. Um, they have barred women from, from serving in government. I mean, there are so many things that we're seeing that are happening. And uh, as I mean, average Americans, we don't have a lot of opportunity to affect or change these things, of course, but um, I think it is good for us to, to be praying for the people who are over there for us to, be thanking. I mean, for people who are listening, you're going to be receiving refugees uh, probably near you in one way or another and figure out how you can help and serve them. Um, because we are, um, people keep talking about the international community and whether or not the Taliban is going to be willing to be a part of the international community. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what that means, uh, what you're <laughs> talking about. Clearly there's not an international community. Actually, there's a group of people who share similar beliefs, but um, more important than that, your local community where you are and where you live and there are opportunities there to, to serve and care for people. Um, but it, it is weighty um, and Lord willing um, things turn out better than they look like they're going right now. I wanted to ask you a quick question, kind of going back to nine 11, because um, I think it's, it's given this 20th year anniversary. Obviously I, I do a lot of reflection on nine 11 every year. I think it's kind of hard not to, um, but something that I've kind of been thinking about this year, um, as, as we've done a lot of study through Westminster Confession of Faith and, and how we think about the church and the state and Christians' relation to the, to the national government and national politics. Um, one thing I don't really remember, but it sometimes comes up when I watch these documentary series or I listen to these interviews, and I, I'd be curious to know if you remember it this way t- at all, um, was that there was a certain level of... Uh, call it civil religion, sort of Christian folk nationalism. Um, I don't know. I don't know quite what you want to call it, but a sort of was, was there this sense that because the terrorists represented um, a certain extremist form of, of Islam, that its target had to, in some ways, in order to understand it, the attack, you had to understand America as some sort of Christian nation uh, as a, in the sense that 9-11 is sort of an example of some kind of holy war that's going on and not necessarily um, a sort of average national uh, foreign policy uh, affair, if you will. Um, but in fact, it had a, a very distinct religious flavor to it. Um, I mean, I obviously remember the Islam of the terrorists being very prominent and talked about Um but I don't really remember so much. It was well because Christian because America is a Christian nation and that's why they attacked us. Do you remember any of that at all? Yeah, I, I think that was um, maybe more than that was how we processed nine eleven was different because the people who attacked us were 
of a different religion. And that religion, the beliefs that they held within that religion were the dominant driving force for their actions. And it was not Christianity, which is the dominant driving shaping religion in America. And that allowed for a greater contrast, I think, and understanding their actions and understanding who we were and what we were fighting for. Uh, I think in a negative way, one of the things that it did was it allowed for us to probably unhealthily baptize a lot of practices that are uniquely American and not specifically Christian, um, or to, to sanctify and set apart them in a way that, look, they may have been... Uh, they may have been attacking a, a, a foreign policy they didn't like or a capitalism or a certain view of what, I mean, our arts are, you know, and what can happen then is like, and then their understanding of us as a Christian nation, what happens then is a combination where we end up using our Christianity to justify and defend those things that we could say, I mean, look, you don't need to de- never excuse the actions of a terrorist. What they did was wrong and excusable. And it was regardless of their reasoning. So that that's not what you do, but, but you can end up missing um, um, and end up making Christianity uh, or Christianizing things that don't need to be Christianized. Again, not at all to say that we shouldn't defend um, our country and, and, the, and, and, and certain things, but um, we can end up, I think, baptizing more things than we should as, a, as an afterthought and a result out of a feeling of needing to defend. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Because I guess looking back on it now, you know, I, I see it as, you know, the, the, the target of the world, of the world trade center obviously stood for, uh, America's sort of capitalistic, uh, very, um, uh, what we might call decadent society that, um, that the, the, the terrorist, uh, groups that attacked us sort of dis- disliked and, and hated, um, but it, it, there's a lot more to it uh, than all that. It's very obviously it's it's very complicated, you know, for the reasons why a terrorist decides to to do what they do, um, and you know the history is very important too. You have to go back to what uh, happened with the Soviet Union when it invaded Afghanistan and America's role in helping a lot of what eventually would become the terrorist cells that attacked us, uh, helping them at the time to get rid of the the Soviets. And so there, there's a lot of there's it's so complicated. There's so many elements, but I, I sometimes wonder as I watch some of this stuff, there seems to be this, this, this strain that there was a, there's at least some people that were interested or invested in the idea of uh, making this a sort of religious, holy crusade um, uh, uh, more so than a kind of what we might think of like Pearl Harbor uh, as sort of, we've been, we were attacked by a, uh, a certain enemy and, and it's uh, America's sort of foreign policy responsibility to like do justice um, and, and respond. Uh, whereas this, you know, for some people, at least they interpret the event as we were attacked because we're Christian. And so that, re- that requires a certain level of response that may be different or take on different, um, forms than a sort of regular old, uh, counterattack, if you will. I don't know, just something I've, I've been thinking about as I, as I reflect more on 9-11 and, and all of the factors that, led to it and then uh, it's, it's ripple effects. Yeah. And, and I will say, I mean, one thing that is different again, because we were, we were fighting uh, and look, there were certainly serious religious connotations in Japan. And the reason that Japan 
ended up attacking us in Pearl Harbor. There was a nationalism that was rabid and ultra nationalism that was growing that was centered around a deification and worship of the emperor that drove Japanese and their belief about who they were to do what they did against America, who was clearly not part of the chosen race that they were. Uh, and, and maybe in a similar way with Afghanistan, um, it, it, it was a religious attack and it was a religious belief. Again, the Taliban is a religious government. And um, I heard one commentator was talking is like there was a, you know, there became a, a fusion in Afghanistan of politics and religion as if that was something new on the world stage. And it's like, honestly, that that's always not always, but well, most of human history, that's been the case. We have a combination of the church and state working together and recognizing that there is a need for there to be religion um, to to buttress the state and its existence. Uh, I think of that great Churchill uh, quote where he says, "I'm not a I'm not a, a pillar of the church, but a buttress," um, which kind of flips things around. But so so maybe this takes us actually really well, I think, to what we want to talk about. Um, for the rest of our time today, which is Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, paragraph three. And the reason it's fitting is that um, the language has changed from the original uh, Westminster Assembly language about the role of the civil magistrate over the involving in the church from the context of England and then the, then, then the context of America. And something here is that when you look at the founders, there was not a single founder who did not expect for religion to play a major role in American civil life. Now, there were debates and questions around religious tests for government. Uh, Jews and Catholics were upset, but they weren't upset about the existence of tests for people to hold public office. They were upset about the form of those tests. They were upset about the fact that they were exclusive against them based on how they were set up and structured. And so, look, we, that doesn't have to mean that America is a, a Christian nation and that it is, it, it is a, a theocracy or, or is God's last great hope for the world in any sense. Only that even in our American founding with our famous separation of church and state structure and setup, that there is within the founding and within the founders an understanding and a reliance upon um a robust and vibrant religion existing in order for a republic to exist. And again, there's a, a lot, not again, but uh, there's a lot of people who are real concerned about republics and, and consider them to be kind of devilish in certain ways. And I think that, that understanding the nature of man, the founder said, yeah, we can have a republic, but it has to be supported by a robust church um, that doesn't necessarily need to be supported by the state. In fact, can't because there's too much, authoritarianism that can happen and overreach of, but that gets us a little field. So, um, but Robert, you've had some thoughts, you've been reading and researched this. What, um, what are your thoughts on, first of all, the original language and then second, the revised language. And then what does that mean for us today? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in those questions. Um, I, I think it's important to point out in, in the original the original language. There's a couple things that um, are written written in, and we should we should talk about them. Um, uh, one thing that uh, the original authors of the of the Westminster uh, Confession write in here is that it is the duty uh, of the civil magistrate 
to uh, suppress blasphemies and heresies um, and also to uh, discipline uh, certain uh, people for those for those blasphemies and heresies and then also to call synods and councils and obviously the Westminster Assembly is itself a, a, a synod or a council that's been called by the civil magistrate to, to work on these things. Um, what's well, I think we just have to kind of remember because we're so saturated in our American understanding of separation of church and state is that that was a pretty basic thing for the uh, uh, Westminster divines to, to write in that they didn't think that was weird at all. In fact, you know, they, for many of them, uh, the assembly is, is going almost too far in trying to separate the church and the state. I mean, for a lot of people who were more accustomed to the uh, original uh, uh, ecclesial uh, structures, uh, that were tied to the, to the church in England. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of distance going on here that it's like, really this, the, the, all the, the head of the, the civil magistrate can do, all they can do is like suppress heresies and blasphemies. It seems to be pretty, a pretty light load. Um, whereas in America in 1788, when they revised the, the Westminster confession, um, they get, they get rid of all of that. They, they say there's, there's no room for the, the state to be doing any of that. Um, what I think is just the, the history of it, I think, is really interesting. Um, the, at the same time, in 1788, that the American pr pr Presbyterians are sitting down to revise the confession, uh, what else is happening? Well, it's the, the Constitutional Convention, I mean, is going on. And what's really interesting, what's really interesting to think about is that those two councils are going on in the same town. They're both happening in Philadelphia at the same time. Um, so you have to wonder, like, how much cross-pollination is going on uh, in these two places? Um, and I, I don't really know where to bring that up, but just to kind of, or I don't know really where to go from there, but just to sort of bring it up, I think it's an interesting historical point. Have you ever thought about that uh, or, well, or anything like that, Will? Who was the one clergyman who signed the Declaration of Independence? John Witherspoon. What was his religious, his denominational background? Presbyterian. Yeah. So you have his involvement in this revision uh, in the American context for the Westminster Confession of Faith and his intimate involvement with the signing of the declaration of independence. Yeah. So it's just, there is an interesting sort of cross pollinization going on. Um, I think also that uh, uh, what's going on in America in terms of its, its thoughts about the church and the state are very distinct and, and different um, for a multitude of different reasons. Uh, I mean, obviously you have the sort of just the basic fact that like most, or not, I shouldn't say most, but, a lot of people that are coming to America are religious minorities trying to escape persecution. Um, and that affects this, this sort of civil character of Americans and what they think about the church. Uh, I mean, uh, America in many ways uh, was able to attract settlers and, and uh, folks to come here uh, because it promised a certain level of religious liberty um, that was cherished in America where it was you know, more frowned upon uh, in other places. Um, and so that, that's sort of baked into our character. And so, of course, in 1788, when the American Presbyterians are sitting down to, to, talk about, to talk about what changes might be made to reflect this American character, it, it, their language very much switches to, you know, less about the, the state's role in protecting the specific church, you know, the, you know, the right way to do church, the American, you know, the Presbyterianism, you know, the Presbyterian way or what have you. No, they basically say, no, like the, the church's role is to be a nursing father, which is sort of a mixed metaphor, but to, to basically promote religious liberty to like, they're basically there to make sure that people don't walk into churches and, and kill each other and, and persecute one another. 
they basically are just to do that. And it's not really clear where they draw the lines. I mean, um, so they're not just necessarily speaking just for Presbyterians. I mean, they're speaking for a lot of other uh, denominations, one, the, the uh, ones that we would consider mainstream, like Anglicans, Methodists, um, uh, Baptists, what have you. But also, it's not really necessarily clear. And in fact, you kind of have to assume that they also mean all kinds of other, you know, uh, uh, religious sects that some that we might be considered less mainstream. Yeah, I mean, to that point, considering the different uh, pluralistic and pluralistic contexts of America versus England. Now, it's funny to say pluralism in 2021 when referring to a variety of Christian denominations. That's largely what it was. There were uh, vast majority of the Christian religion, Jewish, and I don't know how many, maybe a few Muslims, uh, maybe, you know. So, uh, but but there was a pluralistic context in America that was very different from the context in England, which I think also led to um, probably some pragmatic understanding of, hey, the, the state can't be calling all of these um, councils and synods. Why? For one, they're going to end up favoring one over the other, again, which will invariably lead to a, a, a state-sanctioned religion. And James Madison is famous, of course, for saying, if you want paraphrase him, you know, if you want religion to thrive, leave it alone to keep the government out of it. And it will do much better on its own than if you try to support it. Um, but what do you think is better about the 1788 revision to the, the historic original revision uh, version? Well, I think it's, it, it reflects, I think a, a more, um, uh, what's the right way to say it? Uh, the reality on the ground if you will. Um, and and I, what I mean is that, you know, consider a, a England's religious history um, and, and particularly the, the conflict that comes with it. Um, you can start reading basically from Henry VIII and when he uh, breaks away from the, the papacy um, all the way through the Westminster Assembly. Like, I mean, what's happening? I mean, it's, it's religious conflict. I mean, it's, it's people uh, persecuting one another. It's armies rising up against one another in order to uh, depose, you know, either a Catholic or Protestant king or queen in order to put uh, their preferred person on the throne. Um, and I think one thing that the the American um, Presbyterians and, and folks uh, in ecclesial uh, authority in America uh, are saying is like, look, we have a lot of religious plurality, plural, plurality here, um, plurality here, and uh, if um, if we sort of go down that path, like where does it end? I mean, I think there is a certain recognition that um, we want to see a lot. Of, we want to see peace in this land, and we think that the best way to achieve that peace, particularly as we deal with uh, people of different religious beliefs than our own, um, is to try to get the government as far away out of this thing as possible, so that. Um, rising to a certain political office in this land does not necessarily guarantee uh, uh, favoritism of your religious views. Um, if we can divorce those two things from one another, we might actually go farther uh, in promoting peace and, and flourishing in this, in this land, as opposed to what our you know, English cousins did. I think this leads to an interesting question to ask is, um, so, you know, in our context today, we, 
we don't really have much of a, a, a church, a denomination that is favored by the national government. I mean, at all, right? I mean, it, maybe you can say most Supreme Court court justices have been Roman Catholic. You could say that. Uh, you, you could say that most presidents, have, whatever. But the fact is, you, you don't have uh, any like legislated preference to any one denomination or or religion. However, when we talk about the tax exempt status uh, of churches, um, when 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 the government decides to potentially revoke church uh, tax exempt status because a church does not agree with their views on, say, same sex marriage, which is will probably be the big one if this happens, um, is that not a violation of the First Amendment because it is favoring? Uh, certain churches over other. It is it is actually giving government sanction to a particular form of religion uh, and not others. Well, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, the question is, do we have established religion in this country? I mean, technically, no, but practically, yes, right? There is an established religion, at least in terms of, of many important um uh, beliefs on, you know, you brought up, you know, for the example of, of sexuality, but also identity. And um, you could say also when you could also say biology um, in, in multiple ways. Uh, Are you speaking do you, by that? Do you mean the transgender? Transgenderism transgender. or, or even the, you know, when, when life begins. Oh, right. Um, you know, I, I think that's a, that's another important thing. I, I I only say that because, yes, there is no established religion, but the, the state is more than welcome or more than happy to uh, welcome sort of bids, if you will, uh, to sort of come under the wing of the state. Um, and that by far is by saying, well, you know, we can take, we'll, we'll sort of punish you uh, with your tax exempt status or other um, carve outs that you've been given. Uh, that's another kind of way it's talked about the way that you've been given by the state. We'll sort of take those away if you don't start sort of falling in line on on these important issues on our on our doctrinal issues on our orthodoxy. Um, I think that's a really important point that we need to sort of recognize is is actually going on. There really is no that's a, that's I guess I said maybe the, the major critique of the 1788 revisions, which is that this idea that you can separate the church and the state so cleanly might not necessarily be the case. Well, and it's in in addition to that, it's a great example of the. Desire, look, maybe on the other side of the coin, a great desire within the divines and the American Presbyterians for religious liberty, uh, a, a desire to and a recognition that religious liberty is very good for a country as a whole. That doesn't mean a lack of religion, which is kind of what it maybe has devolved to, but uh, a robust religion that people practice is good for a country and a place. And the other, you had mentioned this earlier, um, the, the 1788 revision is looking around and acknowledging that there are, there's a plurality of religions, that there are a host of different belief systems and that one cannot be favored over the other. And so when it talks about the civil magistrate protecting religion, it doesn't say Calvinist Trinitarians, for example, it doesn't say the civil magistrate Bible believing uh, Baptists have to be protected. It 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 talks about those who practice their faith need to be uh, 
allowed to practice by the government, um, which was a very wise, very prudent way to word things and to allow, again, for religious liberty to take root. And it, it is good for us Christians to understand, too, is that religious liberty is good for all and allows for. And look, as a conviction point, I mean, I'm convicted saying this, like it ought to be a point of desire and appreciation for evangelism that we have such religious freedom. I, I think it can, we can sometimes get passive, but you know, we have a, we have a context that's primed for missions, um, primed for evangelization. And, uh, and I think that would probably be in the heart of people who desire religious freedom is to, uh, of any faith and, and specifically for us Christians, the true faith, uh, to, to reach the lost. No, I think that's totally right. And um, uh, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here and defend the 1788 revisions. Um, I do think that uh, what's what's an interesting argument or an interesting idea to sort of tease out is, um, you know, how how well does it how how well does it how how well does it hold up in 2021 um, when uh, many matters that the, the Presbyterians, uh, many of the Christians, many of the uh, uh, non-religious people uh, in, in the colonies at the time uh, would have defined as, you know, a state matter or a church matter. Um, you know, a lot of church matters are being absorbed into the state um, in 2021. And we have to ask ourselves, um, when, when things like that happen, what do we do? Um, you know, I, I would love to be able to like take the Westminster confession and go to, you know, to Capitol Hill or the white house or the Supreme court and just say like, Hey, look, like you're not doing your job as a nursing father. Um, but the reality is that um, uh, that's just not necessarily how, how the state works anymore. And so I do think it's, it's open for a lot of questions and, and conversations about, you know, what is the best way to relate to the state is, is the best way to relate to the state the same as it was in 1788 or do we need sort of a new formulation in 2021? I don't really know the answer to that question, um, but I do think it's 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 interesting to watch, you know, what was teed up in 1788 as this will sort of this will uh, create a lasting period of peace between the church and the state, and to come in 2021 and realize that in many ways those fears are antagonistic towards one another um, uh, in key important ways. Well, you you as we take this plane down for a landing uh you kind of leave us a little bit in suspense and drama and maybe we can <laughs> tease out a little more next week uh the conflicts that are there and how we as christians can live this out and again our hope you mentioned this a few weeks ago robert our hope is that these conversations are useful for christians who are interested in how to engage in government to understand what scripture and and the faith has to say about engaging. And for those that we love and serve here on the Hill, that uh, they are encouraged and reminded um, that God is excited about what they're doing um, as his sons and daughters and their work and the opportunity that he's given them. And so uh, with that, I'm going to close us out here and uh, thank you all so much for listening and being with us. I hope that you guys have a good weekend, that you have a memorable and a a, a valuable, fruitful um, September 11th and we uh, I, I you can follow Robert on Hassler at RD Hassler uh, you can follow me at Stockdale Will and we look forward to being with you next week <laughs>